Amen. Well, good morning. You guys go ahead and have a seat, if you will. Uh, hope you're doing good. Um, hope you've had a good weekend. How many of you, your, uh, your football team won yesterday? Football team won yesterday. Yeah, yeah. If your football team did not win yesterday, you need to get a new football team. Just going to say that. Georgia and Georgia Southern won, so get a new team. Um, anyway, I already lost some of you. Some of you are like, this guy's a jerk. I'll not listen to a word. He's okay. Anyway, but I'm glad you're here. We're going to continue the series uh, this morning, Our House. Actually, we are finishing this series today. We're going to start a new series next week that will be about the minor prophets. Um, many of us probably have not paid much attention to the minor prophets. I kind of think of the minor prophets like the flyover states, right? Where you kind of go from East Coast to West Coast, West Coast to East Coast. We kind of go from Old Testament, New Testament. We kind of skip over those books a lot of times. But there's a lot of really, really, really good stuff, important stuff, encouraging stuff, challenging stuff in those books. And so we want to take a look at them and see how they fit into this whole story of the Bible, this account of God's reconciling purposes um, that begins in Genesis, ends in Revelation. And so we're going to take a look at those beginning next week. I'm excited about it. I think you'll get a lot out of it as well. I know that um, it, it has really spoken to me as I've studied these more. Um, today that we are going to wrap this up, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews there. In the New Testament, book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews was uh, written to a dispersion of, of Jewish Christians. Um, and the theme of Hebrews is this. The theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Uh, it, it goes through, it talks about how Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the Old Testament temple. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better. And so we're going to read the first um, four verses, and then we're going to skip down to verse 11 and read through verse 18. Then we'll pray and we'll get into this message. The thing we're talking about today as the value we're looking at um, the value that we believe is important to the church today is we're looking at this value that is work hard, be accountable. And that may sound a little odd for church, but I hope you'll see it differently when you leave here today, maybe than what you think about when you first hear work hard, be accountable. Um, it's going to be three parts. I'll go ahead and tell you this. We're going to look at work that doesn't work. We're going to look at work that does work. And we're going to look at how accountability plays into that. And so um, let's read these passages. We'll pray. We'll jump in. It says in verse 10, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And so what he's talking about is the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices, all of those things were not the, the culmination of what God had in mind. They were only a shadow of what was to come. It says, For this reason, it can never meaning the law, meaning the sacrifices, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sins. And so what we're seeing here is the author of Hebrews saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the law that we couldn't fulfill. Jesus is better than the sacrifices that were made. Jesus has done what those things could not do. Verse 11, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. 
Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Listen to how repetitive, redundant, dull, um, laborious this is. Day after day, they stand. They do religious duties again and again. And yet these things are not effective to accomplish what they desire them to accomplish. It says, but when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. This is the difference in the Old Testament law and one of them and the New Testament where the Holy Spirit works in us. So the Holy Spirit testifies about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. In other words, instead of now these laws and these, these, these rules and things being written on tablets of stone for us to obey out of our ability, out of our efforts, he's saying now the Holy Spirit is going to give you a new heart. He's going to write those things in your heart. He's going to give you a desire to please God um, in these things. And so it says, then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Father, we thank you this morning for the sacrifice that has perfected those who come to faith, Lord, once and for all. But we know we're not perfect people. But God, I know we have perfect standing, perfect status in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the work you've done, Lord, the work of even creation, that when the earth was void and formless and dark, Lord, the Spirit hovered over the earth and you began to speak and your word says you created something very, very good. And God, I thank you that now you still work to recreate us through the work of Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, lives that are empty and void and dark, chaotic. God, you still speak your word into our heart and through the word of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you still recreate. And God, I thank you for that. Let your light shine in our hearts today that we would leave encouraged, Lord, to worship you, to continue in the faith, to continue to do the work you've called us to as your church. Thank you that you are building us into something. Thank you that you have a great plan and purpose for this earth to be filled with the knowledge of your glory. God, would you um, work in us through your grace in such a way that we would fulfill everything you've set before us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I told you, um, first thing I want to look at is work that doesn't work. But when we think about this working hard, being accountable, I want you to hear this, that I'm not talking about like just working hard in your job, right? Or working hard at school. What I mean by this is that we're working in the kingdom, like whether we're at work, whether at the ballpark, wherever we are, there's kingdom work being done. We're working hard to, to see the kingdom advance. And there's a way of working that works, there's a way that doesn't. Now, one of the things that happens is oftentimes we go from one extreme to the other, right? Um, how many of you are old enough to remember those old clocks? You might have still see one around every now and then, but they actually had a pendulum that swung back and forth. Have you ever seen any of those? Um, actually have a pendulum that swings back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I remember my grandparents had a couple of these. One of them was in the living room, and you could literally hear the tick, 
tick-tock. And it's just on rhythm, on time, every time, right? And I remember just sitting there, and I just start looking at it, and it was almost hypnotic. It'd be like, tick-tock, tick Wait, what's, you know, what's happening, right? And so it was this steady tick-tock, tick-tock. And that pendulum swinging from one side to the other, one side to the other. And here's what happens a lot of times in our lives, even in culture. The pendulum rarely swings to the center. When we realize we're off the mark to some extreme, maybe there's something going on in life that needs to be corrected. Um, what typically happens is rather than swinging back to a place of center, what we typically do is swing to the other extreme. Okay, I want to say this. This is not a political statement in any way. It is just an obvious statement. Think about the last three elections, right? Where were we? Well, you know, the first uh, election back with Obama, we're here. And then what happened? Where'd the pendulum go? Right? And then the next election, where'd it go? That's not a political, I'm just saying, is that not reality? Right? It was almost like political whiplash. The, the, the differences were so much. It's like, we're going this way. Nope, we're going to go back this way. Nope, now we're going back this way, right? And you see the pendulum swing. We do this in so many things in life. There, there's rarely a correction back to a balance. It's usually, well, let's go way over here, or let's go way over here, or let's go way over here. And you can see that um, in so many different areas of life. And so what I want you to understand today is that there is a balance in this working hard. God calls us to this balance. He created the Sabbath. See, God rested on the seventh day. We all need a Sabbath rest. We all need downtime. We need time to, um, to be able to recover. We need to understand that when we rest, we are doing something. We are being rested. We're being recharged for the next thing God has for us. And so we all need this. The, the problem though is we can't just rest all the time, right? God calls us to work. He says, six days you'll work and then you'll rest on the seventh. It'll be holy. It'll be set apart for me. And so there is this balance. But in the world today, we seem to go from one extreme to the other. Hard work sometimes becomes um, something that's seen as negative. But we need to understand that when we're working in the kingdom of God, this is something that we see throughout scripture, that there is a type of work for the kingdom that is good, that we're called to, but there is a type of working that does not work. How many of you um, who are parents, you've ever uh, put together toys at Christmas? Anybody else have done that? How many of you have ever gotten really frustrated putting together toys at Christmas? I remember um, putting together a toy at Christmas one time. I can still see it in my head. It was a rocking horse, stupid little rocking horse. And I was in the little carport area of our, our house. We used to live on Metz Road out in Middle Ground. And, and, and we, I was down in this little carport we had finished as, as a room. And, and I'm down there putting this rocking horse together. And it came time to put the springs on. And the first two springs went on. And then I'm trying to stretch that third and fourth spring back to latch it on. And those springs just wouldn't work. And, and I I fought with it. I pinched my finger a time or two on those springs. And I'm just getting friends. Just so you don't think I'm that holy, the next thing that happens is I turned that rocking horse around and punched it in the nose. 
I was so aggravated, right? Because I'm working. I'm, I mean, I'm literally like that. I'm like sweating. I'm trying to get this thing put together and it just won't work. It was work that was ineffective. It wasn't happening. No matter what I was doing, I finally did get it put together. But when we look at work that doesn't work, when we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, we see some working that doesn't work. We see this working that is in our own effort that cannot accomplish what needed to be accomplished. We see these priests, we see people bringing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, doing their best to live and obey the law, and yet they can never be perfected. The only thing it says that the law and the sacrifices were was a reminder of their sin. And so this is a type of work that doesn't work. Think about this. Why were they working? What was their motivation? Their motivation was guilt. Why? It says that their conscience can never be cleansed. They were just reminded of their sin. They were reminded of their shortcomings. And so they were constantly coming back and coming back, trying to, 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 to deal with their sin, trying to make that guiltiness go away. And see, here's the problem for us. For many of us, this is our church experience. We come back time and time and time again, but it's not for us to come and really worship sometimes. Sometimes we come because we feel guilty. I need to go and I need to, to make some type of atonement for my sin. The fact of the matter is though, we can attend church, small groups, Sunday school, whatever we want to attend over and over and over and over and over again, but it will never be able to take away sin. It will never be able to take away a guilty conscience. It will never be able to cleanse us. All it will do is pacify us for a moment. But listen, we've got to understand that that is a type of working that does not work. Think about who their work uh, in, in their life with God was focused on. It was focused on them. When they went to the temple, it was focused on them. The sacrifices were made, it says, for the worshipers. They would come to try to draw near to God. It was for the worshipers. It was inward focused. So many times, that's what our relationship with God ends with. It just ends with me. What was their work focused on? It was focused on sin. It was focused on making themselves right with God. And if we're honest, man, so much of what happens in the Christian life is still an attempt to deal with our sin, still an attempt to make ourselves right with God, to make ourselves feel okay with God. But that is a type of working that does not work. When was their work done? And here's the, the ultimate reason it did work. It was day after day, again and again. Why? Because it was ineffective. It couldn't do for them what needed to be done. It couldn't address and deal with their sin. It couldn't change their heart. All it could do was modify behavior. And that for just a moment of time. And for most of us, a lot of us, that's what we've known of church is, is let's modify our behavior. We've maybe not even yet let God deal with our heart. It's just always been about modifying behavior. I need to be good. I need to do the right thing. And yet it's just spending our life day after day, again and again, trying to pick the bad fruit off of our life. And yet what God does through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is it's not about trying to pick the bad fruit off. It's not about trying to make good people bad. It's about changing the tree from the root up so that our hearts are changed, 
It's not about taking bad people and making them good. It's about taking dead people and making them alive. Because God puts his spirit in us, he gives us a new heart. This is a work that doesn't work. If our work in the kingdom is still trying to achieve things that we've been given in Christ, then we're working in a way that is ineffective. We need to be people as Christians who are working from something, not for something. We're working from love. We're working from acceptance. We're working from a righteousness we've received in Christ. We're working from justice that God has done in our life. We're working from a relationship. We're not working for love. We're not working for acceptance. We're not working for grace. We're not working for righteousness. Those things have been given if we are in Christ. We need to let that sink into our heart and understand that. How many of you, though, have ever experienced working on something and it actually worked? Maybe you were surprised it worked. Anybody ever done that? I do that sometimes, right? Uh, For many of us, this happens when we turn it off and turn it back on, right? That's how I fix a lot of stuff. Phone, it's not working. What do we do? Let's just turn it off and turn it back on. And then a lot of times it works. You're like, ha, fixed it. Computer, turn it off, turn it back on. Whatever it might be, you know, TV, turn it off, turn it back on. And sometimes it works, and sometimes we're really surprised at that. I've gotten where now when I fix things, because if you're like me, in order to work on something, you have to work on what you're going to work with um, at my house. And so there's oftentimes things that tear up at my house, Um, some just from wear and tear, some from kids. And so when uh, this happens now um, and I go to work on it, Susan will ask me, my wife, she'll say, "Um, did you fix it? To which my reply is, did I work on it? She's like, <laughs> rolls her eyes and walks off. But then if I can't fix it, I'm like, that thing is so broken, nobody can fix that thing, right? Nobody can fix it, right? And, and so there is a way of working that is effective. Sometimes we work on things, man, and it actually works. I want you to see biblically what this looks like. There's this type of working for God, but there's, then there's this other type of working from what God has done in our lives. Let's go from Hebrews now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read about a man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. In this passage, he's talking about the resurrection. And see, we need to understand Um, Many times we wear crosses around our neck, and that is a huge thing, right? But if it were not for the resurrection, then the cross was a good idea. It was a nice thing that God did for us. But because of the resurrection, now we have life, right? God overcame death, overcame sin, hell, the grave, all of those things because Jesus went to the cross, but he was also raised to life. And now that's why we can go from death to life in Christ. If you look at um, scripture, when the apostles and other people in the New Testament are preaching the gospel, they always preach the resurrection. Always preach the resurrection because it is that vital. In this passage of scripture, um, Paul is writing to them because some people have come in and made them begin to question did the resurrection actually happen? And so he's trying to get them to see how necessary it is. One of the ways he's trying to get them to see this is he begins to talk about the number of people who saw Jesus after he was raised. We're going to pick up in verse 8 where it talks about, uh, where Paul writes about how Jesus appeared to him. And it says this, it says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me, I love this, his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, meaning the other apostles, this is what we preach. In other words, the resurrection. And this is what you believed. Now see, this is a picture of work that works. This is a picture of working from something, not for something. And when we look at this, it's a complete opposite of what we read in Hebrews. Instead of being motivated by guilt, Paul is motivated by grace. This, what you'll see in a second is this freakish grace that he received. If you look at verse eight, he says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What that phrase abnormally born literally in the original language, it, it meant premature. It meant um, even like an abortion. It meant something that happened before its time or in a wrong way. And Paul is saying, look, he appeared to me last. He's like, I didn't see Jesus when the other apostles did. He appeared to me at a different time. And so he's talking about this. This word, though, would come to mean something almost like horrible or freakish, like something that was created or existed that was horrible, that was freakish. And I think in this that Paul may be saying, and commentators, different scholars, that they, they, they debate on what he's actually saying here. But what I can see him saying is this. You need to understand, I was this freakish monster before. I persecuted the church. He goes into these disparaging remarks. I persecuted the church. I did awful things to the church. And he comes in here to verse 10. He says, but, but God intervened. But God's grace. I was this horrible person. But God, in this, this other time, this time that seems out of place, gave this freakish, ridiculous, lavish grace to me. This unmerited favor, this unconditional love, it moved God to move in my life. And so many times in scripture and even in our own lives, we're going one direction towards a path of destruction and there's this but God and he inserts himself and we experience grace and he turns us to a different direction and once again intervenes in our life to bring us to a better place. And we see this with Paul. So why was Paul working? Those priests were working because of guilt. Paul was motivated by grace. Who was Paul focused on? Who was his work for? It was for other people. In fact, Paul's writing these letters, all these letters Paul wrote in the New Testament was to people to, so that they wouldn't wander from the faith. Paul wasn't doing this to try to earn something for himself or to try to gain something. He knew he already had everything he needed for life, for godliness, for um, the, to live the life that God called him to. What Paul is doing is he's writing these letters to encourage others to not fall away from the faith. He knew his sin had been dealt with. He no longer had to look inwardly to try to fix himself. The Spirit of God would finish what he had begun. And so when we look at this, there's a completely different way of seeing it where Paul is doing what he could for others. The sin issue had been resolved. 
What was Paul's work focused on? What was his kingdom work focused on? It was focused on knowing God and making him known. This was his whole life. This was everything. When was Paul's work done? Like, was he ever finished? No. Did he rest? Yes. But was his work ever done? No. It was all the time. The kingdom work was all the time. There was no division of sacred and secular. It was all one thing. It wasn't just one time during the year or one time during the day that he did the, it, look, it was all the time. And he says this. He says, this grace was not without effect. I want you to hear this because this is really important. It was not without effect. It affected all of his life because grace doesn't just impact our eternal life. It impacts all of our life. Every area. God calls us this. Y'all remember the plate last week? Those of you who are here, we talked about this. That God's not a priority that he's the determiner of our priorities. We don't have our family life, work life, hobbies, our God life. Like Jesus is the one who holds all of that. He's the one who determines priorities, not a priority among priorities. Well, it's the same thing when we think about grace. Grace doesn't just touch our eternal life or our God part of our life. Grace touches every aspect of our life. It is effective in all of those areas. So whether we are at work, whether we are with our family, whether we are at Mill Creek for a ball game, whether we are doing whatever we're doing, grace is still there to work in our lives so that we can do the work of the kingdom where we are in that moment, motivated by grace, focused on others, working to know God, not working to be accepted by God, but striving to know him more, continuing to press forward. Paul talks about pressing on to attain the goal for which Christ had called him. And that's what we do as well. I hope you can see the difference in those two ways of living, those two ways of working, one working for something, one working from something, one motivated by guilt, one motivated by grace, one focused on myself and trying to make myself right, the other living out of being made right, one trying to still deal with sin, the other realizing sin has been dealt with and living out of the grace of God, one that deals with momentary actions that try to make me right, the other one living out of what God has done and already made us right. I hope you can see that. What does this mean to us, though? What does it mean to us as Christians, as people of God? It means this, that we too have experienced a freakish amount of grace, a ridiculous amount of grace in our lives through Christ so that our focus no longer has to be on making ourselves right with God, but it can now be on knowing God and making him known at all times, in all places, because all of our lives have been touched by grace. I want you to get this. I want you to see this, that Paul realized this. This is what changed Paul's whole perspective on, on people and his purpose. This is why he no longer saw people according to the way the world did. Paul realized that if Jesus' sacrifice and the grace that came through Jesus Christ was able to save him, reconcile him, change him, that there was no one, 
that Jesus's grace could not save, reconcile, and change. And this was his whole way of seeing God, the whole way of seeing this grace, this unmerited favor, unconditional love that moved God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Many times in church, and, and I'm sure a lot of you have probably been in um, an accountability group. Many of us probably have had accountability partners. Um, but in the church, a lot of times what those become is like a moral policing, right? Those become uh, where we begin to talk about sin and we kind of talk about um, what you did. It kind of becomes this thing where we want to modify each other's behavior, but it doesn't do much for the heart. And sometimes I've been in these groups and sometimes we would sit down and um, the questioning and the conversation would go something like this. It would go, um, did you sin this week? Yeah. Did you sin this week? Yeah. You look at porn? Yeah. You read your Bible? No. And it kind of goes like that, right? Where we're just trying to force one another into some type of behavior modification. And is this really all that there is to account is accountability to make us do what we're supposed to do? Is it to force us to do it? Is it because we need a morality policeman in our lives? Is it to beat us into moral perfection and submission? I don't think that is what accountability for us should be. Um, if you look at Titus 2.14, it talks about how grace works in our life to make us eager to do what is good. It's not reluctantly. If we're working from instead of for, there's this eagerness to do what is good. If we really see who God is and what God's done and God is working in our lives through his grace and the Holy Spirit, there's an eagerness to do good, right? And so accountability for us, I believe, has to look different. Even as we go back, go back to the book of Hebrews, as we look at this letter and all these letters that are written in the New Testament, even these letters are a type of accountability, they're a type of accountability. They're, they're there to encourage. They're there to bring back to center. They're there to keep them persevering in faith. And so even as we look at this letter to the Hebrews, it in and of itself is a type of accountability. I want us to go through, pick up where we left off, verse 19. I want us just to see real quick how accountability plays into us working in a way that works. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, and I just want to stop right there. The very first thing I want you to see in this letter that is a type of accountability in and of itself, I want you to see that this therefore is huge. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you come to a therefore, you come to a for, you come to a because, you come to any type of transition like that, you need to underline it because what the author of that letter or that book is doing is they are saying, this is what was, but now this is it. Or this is what happened, and because of that, this is what happens. And so it's really important to pick up on those things. Now in this case, the therefore goes back to the fact that Jesus 
did for us what our working could not do for us. And so he's saying, listen, therefore, since Jesus has done for us what we could not do, since we no longer have to work in a way that doesn't work, since he has accomplished for us what we couldn't accomplish, since the priest is no longer standing day after day, but Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is now resting in this. It's not because he's tired, it's because he was finished. When we see this and we begin to understand this, this is huge. There's this huge transition that took place when Jesus came and he's saying now, therefore, you need to recognize this. You need to understand this, that what we could not do has been accomplished through Christ. And he says, therefore, and I want you to understand that Christian accountability centers on the good news, not sin. Christian accountability centers on the good news, not sin. It's not that we don't address sin. It's not that we don't deal with sin. We don't, uh, it's not being a very uh, loving friend. If we're about to watch somebody walk off a cliff and we don't stop them, we don't tell them. But the primary focus of our getting together in community is not just to deal with sin, it's to point each other back to the good news. This therefore, if you go back and look through um, the different aspects of Hebrews, this therefore then kind of, you could say it means this, since therefore is saying since we have received this freakish, ridiculous grace and have been reconciled to God once and for all since we have been made perfect, since we have been cleansed once and for all, since we are no longer guilty, since our conscience has been cleansed, since we don't have to be reminded of our sin, since the sacrifice has been made once and for all, since Jesus has sat down because he was finished, since we are forgiven. And now he's going to go on and tell us how to respond to that. Since all of this has been accomplished by Christ, what do we do? He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we look at this, and I promise I'm not going to stop at every word, but I want you to see this part of it. When he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, he's speaking to a community of people, the church. He was speaking to them back then, but understand this, he's still speaking to us now. And as a community of believers, when we come to Christ, we need to understand that he was writing to a people who've come to faith in Jesus and a people who would have the same purpose, the same callings, the same reason for existence. And when you look at this, he's basically saying you are people who have one heart and one purpose because you belong to one body. You've received one spirit. You share one hope. You follow one Lord. You've come to one faith. You've experienced one baptism. You worship one God. You're children of one father. He's saying, in other words, you are all part of the same family. You all have the same purpose. You all exist for the same reason, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, to make him known, to know him and to make him known. And when we look at this, this is a critical aspect of accountability because one, accountability centers on the good news, but also Christian accountability requires a common agreed upon goal. Like if we don't share that, then accountability is never going to work. Why? Because I'm trying to encourage you. I'm trying to walk with you. I'm trying to keep urging you towards something you don't want to get to. If we're going to be able to see accountability be effective and we're going to really work in a way that works, then we have to desire the same goal, to know God and to make him known. 
So many people in the church today, look, that's not our really, that's not really our goal. And if that's not the goal for someone, then it's going to be a burden for them and a burden for you to try to walk with them to a place they don't want to go. When we look at it, it's, it's imperative. It's common, agreed upon goal. When we look, and, and let's go ahead and read the rest of this section. He says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. In other words, we can now come confidently into God's presence. He says, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest meeting Jesus over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and with full assurance that brings that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching one of the things I want you to understand is that we will not become our best selves left to ourselves. We need people in our life. It's why he says that we should not forsake gathering together. We need people in our lives. We go further, faster in community. We go further, faster with people encouraging correcting, walking with us. It's the way God designed it. We also need to understand that Christian accountability puts our focus back on God. It's calling each other back to see our way back to God, to recognize I've begun to wander. Now I'm coming back. I'm repenting. I've gone a different direction. I've had a change of mind. Now I'm coming back. Christian accountability puts our focus back on God. The writer of Hebrews later in chapter 12 will say this, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We need people in our lives who call us back, who point us back to Christ. Christian accountability reminds us not of our sin, but of God's grace. We see this in Hebrews 22, the last section or part of that that our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We need people to remind us of the grace of God. We need people to keep us relying on and living in God's love, not trying out for it. And even accountability should be an expression of love because it's looking out for the best interest of other people. Accountability sees these blind spots. How many of you have ever been riding down the road? You go to start changing lanes and all of a sudden the horn blows. And you're like, oh my gosh, right? And you had a blind spot. You're like, you didn't see them. Or either you were texting and driving. You shouldn't do that. And you just all of a ah. We all have blind spots. They're all, we all have things we can't see. But listen, if I want to get to this place and I truly desire to know God and to make him known, I want to know him more, I want to know him, and I want others to know him, and I'm truly desiring that, then guess what? I need people who can see the blind spots. I need people who can help me in my walk. 
I need people in my life. I need community because left to myself, I'll never become the best of what I can be, what God designed me to be. I need community. Our accountability also anchors us in hope. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. This is one of the things that concerns me the most about the virus. Obviously, the, the death and destruction that it's caused, but when I look at the church, as the, as the big C church, so many people have wandered. So many people have left. So many people are gone. I can tell you this for this church, and I believe most churches, most pastors I talk to say the same thing, that their numbers are somewhere about half, averaging out to probably about half of what they were. And it's not about getting a bunch of people in here. That's not what I'm saying, but as a pastor, it's concerning to me. Because if all those people who aren't here, if they're at another church, praise God, man. But most of them aren't. And typically, for people, the first step away from God is a step away from his people. And here's my concern, is that there's so many people out there who we love, who we care about, that have wandered. And I know for a lot of people, they're still concerned with gathering. And I'm not saying, like, you need to get back here, whatever, 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 but... I am saying you need community in some way. And I don't know if you're watching online, if somehow you come across this, but my plea with you is get back into community. Get back into community. We're not intended to do this alone. We need other people in our lives. As verse 24 says, when he says, not to give up gathering together. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. If there's ever been a time in our lives that we need the encouragement of other believers, pointing us back to the hope of Christ, pointing us back to the encouragement that comes from Christ, pointing us back to the gospel and the good news, pointing us towards those things, it is now. It is now. And it's almost like the writer of Hebrews, because these people were being persecuted like crazy for their faith. It's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, I know the tendency when things get hard and you begin to face opposition, the tendency is to stop. But it's like he's saying, as things get worse, you need each other more. I'm going to end with this and just ask you some questions. Why are you working or why aren't you working in the kingdom? Why, if, if you're working, like, is it because of guilt or grace? Are you working for something or from something? Let me ask you this. Who's your work for? Who's your life's effort focused on? Is it still you trying to make yourself right with God, trying to cleanse a guilty conscience or have you realized what Jesus has done for you? And so now your life can be focused on knowing God and making him known. What is your work, your life's effort working toward? 
And lastly, when, when will our work be finished? Because this is what I hope for us, what I pray for us, is that we won't stop. We will continue being a no excuses, hardworking body, relentlessly pursuing God's vision until every person knows, until the earth is filled with the knowledge of God's glory. How can you be a part of that? And, and, and look, there's always ways you can serve in the church. Absolutely. We need, we need people and kids right now, desperately need people and kids right now to help. Um, we need people serving in every area. We do. But let me tell you this. Um, it needs to happen out here. One of the things we can do to see this happen is to begin to grab folks around us who aren't in community. You don't have to gather 10 or 12 Gather two, you know, get you and two more people. I talked about this last week. Grab a couple of other people that you know that are on the fringe. Man, bring them in and begin to walk with them. Begin to just go through scripture, go through um, a book that, that, that addresses something that uh, you need to, to address with your life. Maybe there's something you're interested in. Start going through something with them. Start praying together. Just grab a couple of folks. Just invite them in. Pray, Lord, show me who it is and begin to go and grab folks and pull them into your life. Let them walk with you as you walk with Jesus. This needs to be the culture, the DNA of our church. And we sing that song about this is a move. If we want to see a move, then let's start doing this. It doesn't have to be programmed by the church. We don't have to have a sign up. You know what it is? It's God stirring our heart to go grab a couple of folks and say, hey, guess what? I need somebody in my life. Let's do this. And then after a while, they go do that with somebody else and then somebody else. And it's this incredible move. How do I know it'll work? Because that's what Jesus did. How do I know it'll work? Because that's what Paul did. How do I know it'll work? Because it's God's design. If we want to be a part of this move of God, this is what we're called to. To be a part of other people's lives, growing in knowing God and making him known. I want to pray for us. We'll be dismissed. But I really hope, guys, that this is what our church becomes about. It becomes about people giving their lives to the kingdom of God. It's about people giving their lives to others so that they can know God and grow in making him known. Father, I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, you would stir our hearts. God, that we would be set free from working in a way that doesn't work and we would live from, God, what you've done, from your love and salvation, from the righteousness you've given, from the life you've given, not trying to live for acceptance and love, but God, celebrating, rejoicing in what you've given us. I pray that would be a meditation of our heart throughout our day. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are relentlessly about your vision, that we would be a people investing in other people's lives, that we would be a people growing and knowing you, God, continually in all of who you are. But we thank you for it. We give you praise for it, God, today. Thank you for each person in this room, the giftings you've placed in their lives. 
God, would you stir their hearts for the things that are important to you? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.